Hey y'all, this is Mike Joseph, and you are listening to Detoxicity, a podcast about non-toxic masculinity. I want to thank you in advance for listening, and also remind you to push that subscribe button so you can have upcoming episodes delivered right to you. Also, feel free to leave feedback by rating and commenting. Finally, get in touch with me either by following me on socials, Tis Mike Joseph on Twitter and Detox Pod Guy on IG, or by emailing me, detoxpod at gmail.com for all y'all old school people. I love feedback. Don't hesitate to reach out with ideas for the show or suggestions for guests or if you yourself would like to be on the show. Thanks again for supporting this. It is greatly appreciated. Hey folks, this episode marks a special milestone in the history of detoxicity. This is episode 52, which means that we've been doing this show for a full year now. I thank you all for listening to and supporting this podcast, and I've got some great content as well as some surprises set for year two. All I can say for now is stay tuned. To wrap up the first year of Detoxicity, I am interviewing Tash Neal. Tash is a musician, singer, and songwriter born and raised in New York City, Harlem to be specific. Uh, he first gained notice as a member of the group The London Souls, and he released his debut solo album, Charge It to the Game, just last week. He's performed with Lenny Kravitz, The Black Crows, Slash, and many others. Uh, in this interview, Tash has a lot to talk about, uh, starting with his New York City upbringing with musician parents. Uh, we get into the topics that currently inform his music with racism being one, uh, particularly his experiences as a black rock musician. He also speaks movingly and hauntingly about his miraculous recovery from a car accident in 2015 that cost him part of his skull and almost cost him his life and what that experience has subsequently taught him. So uh, check this out. Tash Neal, some real talk right here. My name is Tash Neal. I'm a musician, songwriter from New York, born and raised, and yeah, been playing pretty much the majority of my life. And I love playing guitar a lot. And I do that, well, before the pandemic, live for human beings in person, but I'm looking forward to doing that soon with this new album uh, that's coming out on March 12th. So I'm just happy to be here, happy to be anywhere, you know, fortunate. Right. You know? How did you come into music? Like, if I remember what I read correctly, your parents were both musicians? Yeah, my, my dad played 27 instruments, which is a lot. And he, did, he, and he was really, I mean, mainly trumpet and flute, but he loved all instruments, you know. And my mother was a classical piano prodigy at the age of like five, six. She got to be on television, which was oh, wow. a rare thing, especially for Black people, you know, at that time. So just grew up with them singing in the house. They both sang in the choirs and in an acapella group. So I was just exposed to a lot of music. My mother was also a music producer. So there were so many CDs in the house and she had the headphones on sequencing, you know, producing records. And, you know, so I, yeah, again, I was just fortunate to be around them. You know, Howard graduates, shout out to Howard. Word. But did they, was there ever a sense like, of a push or was it just like you being absorbed in the music so much that you just kind of saw this as the way to go? You know, that's funny. I mean, I never really thought of it like a push, but there was literally a day and I'll never forget it. It was a Sunday and they sat me and my brother down, my brother, Sean, who's a couple of years older than me. And it was like storming. It was really dark, cloud storming, you know, ominous day. And they said, listen, we're taking you to this music school and you, you guys got to decide what you want to play. And I never thought of the guitar like as a thing that I could be good at or whatever. But in this conversation, my brother said, he said drums. So I immediately said drums because I'm the younger brother. <laughs> and, and then I, for whatever reason, also said guitar. And then my dad had a guitar. He wasn't really a guitar player like that at the time. He had like a guitar around the house but nobody played it. And then we weren't listening to rock music or anything like that. So I picked it and, you know, my teachers really pushed me more than my parents did. Okay. I think that, you know, there was an investment. So certainly it weren't gonna waste money on instruments or things like that if you weren't putting the work and the time. So they definitely made sure, you know, I minded my, my P's and Q's on that, but nothing like, um, showbiz like stage parents stage parents right yeah no they didn't there was not zero percent of that it was really like you know you have to work twice as hard you have to you know and i wanted to i wanted to make them proud of course like any any kid but thankfully 
there was none of that you know stage manager stage parent stuff like that they didn't try to do you like britney or anything like that no Good. no uh, no I'm, I'm not in need of being freed at the moment uh, where in new york did you grow up on the upper west i was born on 114th and and then grew up right right near the park and then it was around 93rd and then went up to 116th in saint nick all right just where the family still is okay i'm actually moving back to harlem at the end of the week which is exciting all right congratulations on moving moving during the pandemic can be a little little crazy you know, so presumably you were living in harlem before gentrification you know well i you know i was a kid in the 90s i wasn't living right. in harlem proper until a few years later but yeah in the as a kid new york was just different you know what i mean like there was even on our block you know people the dealers were chilling in the playground where like the kids were supposed to be chilling. You know? yeah. so it's like and i remember you know there were crack vials like on the block just walk down the street just there was just something you avoided like a car coming like that right. was just normal you know what i mean yeah, I, I often, I grew up in New York as well, and I often try to tell people how different New York in the late 80s and early 90s was from the way it is in 2021, or well, 2020 when there was civilization last. But yeah, it's just like a 180 degree change. You remember Times Square? Oh, I definitely remember Times Square. It's be real different. Yeah, I was like, you know, I, I've told people on occasion, like, you haven't lived until you've been picked up by somebody. Somebody's tried to pick you up in Times Square. Someone's tried to solicit you in Times Square. <laughs> that was a different, like, it, it's been so long since that kind of danger. I mean, I was talking, we were talking to some friends recently, and it was funny, but my mom was saying the same thing, that it's kind of, in the pandemic, it's kind of got that tinge, like, that feeling of, like, ah, things could pop off and go left. Yeah. At any moment, like people are a little bit more wild right now. Yeah. You know? But I, there was a sign pre pandemic, you know, through the, since like maybe after 9 11, like it just kind of took a turn and turned into, you know, people say Disney, whatever, but it definitely, the element of danger has been greatly diminished. As soon as the Eminem dude came. <laughs> yes. They, oh, I, was, okay. I, I forgot about the Eminem's dude. I like that. Wow. It was the future. All right. So you mentioned not listening to rock music as a kid. What music were you listening to growing up? Basically what was on the radio. Okay. Uh, like I remember whatever like was hits. Like even like I remember when Ace of Bass came out. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, right. uh, like I saw the sign, it's a bop. Like I like that. But yeah, like again, this was a time. There was a show. Remember, there was a show called The Box. I remember The Box. Remember that, and it, like had all the videos, and you could like order videos. Like before, there was requests. Like we had The Box, yeah. And all these videos would premiere, and it was like, like very early, like '90s hip hop. Like it was truly the Renaissance period. So that's what I did. Like came up from school, and I just watched The Box, and, and just dig that. And you know, but my folks. You know, my parents weren't really because they it was a job as well for them so they're not at the crib putting on music to relax <laughs> you know right my mom she's if she's listening to music it was for work you know and she was intently jotting stuff down so yeah my my whole thing was yeah what was popping on the radio what was cool at like middle school dances you know <laughs> like what was you know that was really it right. i didn't have any rock snobbery or anything like that you know it's good all right, rock yeah. snobbery is bad. It's not, it's not good. Um, yeah, and for anybody who does not know what the box is, the box was like a twenty-four hour a day channel on TV. When if you wanted to see a video, you dialed a phone number mm -hmm. and typed in a code. That's right. And that video eventually would show up on on TV. But pre YouTube, like if, if you're under twenty-five. Yeah, you know, you can't even conceive of this because you could just go on YouTube and pull up any video you want to pull up. I mean, it's it's truly insane. Like I was, you know, I'm moving and I was talking to, to my love about this. 
you can measure things virtually with an app on your phone. It's like, we're really out here in the future. Like I couldn't, I said, well, we made it, you know? Like This is, yeah, this this is Jetson's like, time. It's Jetson's for real. And I'm just happy to see it personally. Right. <laughs> like that's pandemic bad, but Jetson's good. Yes, yes. You can, you take the good, you take the bad. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. So moving forward to actually becoming a professional musician, like when were you like, all right, I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna try to make it a career. Cause you went to business school or you were considering it. I did, man, yeah. My first professional gig was in church, right? Okay. And, and that was really influential on me because, you know, my, my parents worked, you know, they did choirs in the church. My mother directs a choir in the church as well. Shout out to an inspirational choir, Riverside Church. And so those were my first gigs. And it wasn't like, oh, you can do this for a living. Cause I, at that point was still taking, learning the guitar as a job. Like I had to practice a lot. I was still going to school every Saturday you know, I had an extra day of school learning music, you know. So didn't think of it. I didn't know what touring was. I, I wasn't interested in rock lore like that yet. When I got into high school, that's when bands really hit. You know, that's when I really got into, you know, Cream and Zeppelin and Hendrix, Sly and the Family Stone, James Brown, you know, Bob Marley, and that opened my mind in terms of writing songs. But again, I, w I was not thinking about starting a band. I went to business school in DC and I started playing bass because I got sick of being called like Lenny Kravitz. You know, it depended on the year. In the nineties, it was Hootie. Right, and yes. So I was like, okay, whatever, whatever they decide. And I was like, this is annoying. Whatever I do, however I play, they're going to just, whatever, whoever is at the time, they're going to say you. Right, yeah, because if, if you're a black person yeah. and you're not playing R&B or hip hop, no, yeah, because they only let one of, well, back in the day, they only let one of us in at a time. I said, it's like comedy. <laughs> yeah. just, it can be only one that white people know yeah. who that black guitar player is at the time. So it was Hootie in the 90s. And that, and then it was like when I said, okay, I can't. I was like, I'm, no matter what I do, what state I'm in, wherever in the world they're gonna just and i said forget it. i'll play the bass because they just expect black people to play to bass. play bass exactly and but it turned out to be true for me <laughs> and i said i'm just gonna do this my brother called me and i was in the dominican republic my brother called me and he goes hey you know did you ever think about starting a band and I was, I, I hadn't thought about that. I'd been in bands, I played guitar in bands, you know, it's like backup and all that, but I, you know, I'd written songs, but I wasn't like, ah, oh, I started a band. Right. Did a lot of jamming in New York and like our rehearsal studios, because I loved playing, but I did not, I was, didn't think of myself as a front person or like what, whatever that. So with his encouragement, I think I could, because I had friends that I thought were great. And I was like, I think I could, see the band you know being put together and at that point that's when my life really, it just never went back you know as soon as i forged those friendships and started the band it became you know what i'm still doing you know right writing songs making records and, and playing concerts and all that you brought up an interesting point or i guess we collectively brought up an interesting point about black folks that play rock music and mm -hmm. i i I think things have changed in the last few years, but in the 90s, it really was a situation where it was like, okay, there was Living Color, and then there was yeah. Lenny Kravitz, and yeah. then there was Hootie. Yeah. And it was like, <laughs> if you wanted to be a rock musician and you were darker than cardboard, they only let one of us in at a time. That's one. That's right. You are so correct yeah. on that. I mean, and that, that was, that was apparent in the 90s. You know, I knew what it meant when someone, oh, who do you? Because there, wa there wasn't enough room mentally for, for mainstream culture. And I say mainstream, I mean, right. white people and broader. But even, you know, black people, you know, I, I almost got, I was carrying my guitar one day and it wasn't cool to be black and have a guitar, you know, especially you should be rapping, doing whatever. Right. When kids approached me with a box cutter and were trying to get, trying to get at me, I was so tight. 
I went to the crib. I put my put the guitar down and grabbed the bat. Yeah, we didn't fight. Nothing happened. I didn't find them, but I was so mad because I was like, I just want to play the guitar. And uh, but to your point, it also goes to show how much kind of harder you have to work if you are a black musician in a different context. You know, they 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 really like us to be in our lanes. Yeah, boxes that sometimes work to the our detriment if we stay in a box because they don't want us to do all the things i mean shit like you said things are different now but i remember my first tour there was a gig we played i was opening for a country artist at the time so whatever mm -hmm. that's not an excuse i was like 20 something i was a young 20s and the first night of the tour this guy is just giving me the middle finger <laughs> in the audience you know just me intently like literally like this is in kentucky like literally like i'm I want to lynch you after the show. Like, that's it. Everyone around, no one stopped them, but they knew, you know? And I said, okay, like that's that's what that is. And there was a few other instances on that tour. You know, I was in a place, yeah, just a lot of crazy stuff. But to the point as well, playing rock and being black, it, it just, it's just different, man. It's just different. What kills me is hey we created this shit right <laughs> you know if it wasn't for uh, you know little richard and chuck berry you know and and you know sisters at a tharp and all, all these different people you big know mama thornton. big mama thornton right there would be no no rock music but also like it comes both ways like white folks don't expect to see a black person playing rock music and right. then black folks kind of look at it like oh you know, why are y'all playing white music? Or why are y'all yeah. listening to white music? And it's like, we all need to kind of get it together and understand that, hey, this is this is music we created, it's music for everybody. And it, it, it troubles me that it is seen as almost, in some circles, it's seen as like a, 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 a traitorous thing to your race to pick up a guitar and play, <laughs> play rock music. Oh. That's how it felt, <laughs> even you know, when I started, because I was the only kid. I mean, even the music school, nobody, there wasn't any black people with guitars walking around. So right. you are weird to exist that way. So I already had an extra target on my back just doing something that was out of the norm. But to your point, I mean, it is frustrating. Without Chuck Berry, there are no modern guitar heroes. Without Little Richard's high, ooh, the Beatles aren't as popping with the vocals. That's right. So they are the we're the architects of this. It it I was having this conversation literally yesterday. You know, Little Richard was alive when Pat Boone had a single with Tutti Fruity. Tutti Fruity, that's right. Now you know, you watch it today and you go, well, that's silly. But sadly, not much has changed. If you look at, you know, white pop artists, for instance, if they want to appear older, they want to transition from younger to, you know, mature, what do they do? They, they go to a black, black yep. producer. Sometimes there's a black stint. Sometimes the look changes. And this is a hundred out of 100% of the time for the most popular and most successful ones. And I would love to someone to send me at least one that is, but I haven't found one in a hundred years, so. I can't think of, I mean, from Britney and Justin and, and you know, all of that to Ariana Grande and, you know, all these people now, like, that's the thing you get, you know, you get the Timbaland, you get Pharrell or you get somebody and you become urban I love inventing words for black and white. Yeah. yeah. Urban, urban. It's, it's, yeah. It's, it's, it's fun. It's yeah. fun because we don't, there's no way to know what they're talking about. Right. Um, but it, yeah, no, it's, it's, I do find comfort in the consistency though, because it keeps our North Star together. It's like, oh, well, this is going to be the situation. Not, we, we know we're not crazy because. Right. Same thing over and over. What I also what tickles me is when the inevitable going back and doing a country album. 
you know? <laughs> it's yeah. like, what happened to the, the urban? Yeah. Thought, you know, I thought we were doing the whole thing. We, you know, they tried to be black for a minute. For a second. And yeah, you know, and that's, it's the Miley Cyrus scenario. You know, I enjoy, I think she's a, she's a, a talented person, but she definitely like, she got the black scent for a minute, was rocking the, you know, was rocking the gold fronts and, and you know, then, you know, Nikki called her ass out and she rolled, like, she did that Homer Simpson fade right back into the bushes and made like a country record. <laughs> that's, and, that's really real. You know. I mean, it is, she's very talented as well. Yes. It, that's the frustrating thing. So a lot of these artists are really talented. The, the sad thing is the system with which we all live forces people to do those things, to keep it consistent. Right. To, it is almost a sign of supremacy to kind of be like, hey, your entire culture is a costume. We can profit from, benefit from, and then buy and then go back to make a country record. Yeah. Sell even more albums, sell even more records, which has always been the case. You know, there's a reason Pat Boone sold more records. Right. There's a reason, you know, Big Mama Thornton wrote Hound Dog, you know, did that expertly, but Elvis was the one, yeah. you know, talking about that song. I, you know, I was thinking when you were saying that, you know, Miley Cyrus is the reason a lot of white people know who Mike Will made it is that's right so in some you know it is good to have exposure but we're in a capitalist society yes people need to make money but the supremacy never goes away that's right you know that's absolutely right now i actually want to talk about something ain't right mm -hmm. because it's you know like i almost view it as talking about racism and inequity with a musical framework that white people might actually be able to understand. It, it's, it's like, it's such a powerful song and the lyrics are so powerful. Like what drove you to write that song? Well, thanks. I really, I really appreciate that yeah. saying that. But yeah, I was writing it on, I was on the couch a lot of times on the couch. Wait, this couch or? I don't know, a couch similar. Okay, yes, okay. <laughs> I was playing, playing guitar and I was watching, I'm often watching the news. And, and Philando Castile had just been murdered. And I just couldn't, and it's always bad. It's never good to see your people murdered by the state mm -hmm. and then have it become a, what did we do wrong conversation or how sh sh short was our skirt to deserve it. But what really struck me was that for all the talk of suburban you know, parents, they care about their kids, Philando, the, the, there was a child in the back seat of the car. And same with Jacob Blake's children in his car. And if we're willing to be this brutal in front of children that claim to care so much about, it just kind of really struck me. And I'm writing this song and I don't know what, like the riff came to me, but I, coming up the words and Black Lives Matter had been happening since Ferguson, but I didn't want to say Black Lives Matter in a song. I would like, that's corny. I'm not going to do that. And I definitely wasn't going to kumbaya. We should not all just love each other. If your love is dehumanizing me, taking away my right to vote, abusing me, brutalizing me, that's not love. In fact, it's abusive in a toxic relationship. So I'm sitting there and I wasn't gonna slow the song down either because I didn't want that woe is me. Cause we don't, we, we've been inventing the culture. We've been right. celebrating through hardship. That's what we have, that's the resilience. But I was in tears. Like I was crying, trying to, you know, sing this song. So I wanted to just be very blunt. Like something ain't right. Another dead in the night. Though you treat it like a chore our lives matter just like yours. It's as simple as that. And with the video, the really important thing to me and me and my brother, Sean, you know, I wanted to start with, you know, an imagery like a lynching, right? Because I don't think people really understand how immediate these horrors are. 
And I don't think people understand that the people, the people that, oh, you know, I'm not looking forward to Thanksgiving because I don't want to talk to Aunt Carol or Aunt Diane. It's like, well, you know, here's the thing. You should ask them because they might have, you know, a black person's thumb or, you know, other finger as a souvenir. Cause she might've been a little girl when after Sunday church, they would go to a lynching and pose in front of the camera, much like these insurrectionists were proud to do on January 6th, mm -hmm. the they would pose in front of the camera and smile in front of a hanging dead body, right? These people aren't dead. They didn't, they weren't tried. They weren't murdered by the state like Philando Castile. They weren't murdered like Tamir Rice. They went on and inherited generational wealth and continued probably still believing the same thing. So I wanted to directly speak to that in the video and in the first verse and say, we see you do us like you do and you say it's never you because I'm not wearing a clan hood anymore. You know, shout out to Reagan for switching it up. Gliat water for switching it up. Yep. But to your, again, like you said, I wanted to be direct in the second verse as well. I truly think spiritually, you know, when white people feel bad about racism and they go, oh, that's just terrible. I know it's bad. The only way societally, globally, people are going to feel better is if those debts are repaid. Because at the end of the day, we became a world power based on free labor. And that's it. And, and Aunt Carol is not going to inherit, you know, she's not going to not inherit that generational wealth, even though they might feel bad about redlining, feel bad about segregation, or feel bad about Jim Crow or slavery. For some reason, these inequities continue. So I said, you know, if your freedoms were ignored and our wealth was never yours, then we'd be playing on an equal field. Then we can sing Kumbaya and we can have pictures of cops kneeling and white and black children running to hug each other. We can do that. <laughs> then. But I don't want to talk about that until that is done. And frankly, I think white people will feel better because they know it's that, that guilt, that, that guilt is because, oh, I stole and I don't deserve what I'm having now, you know? And that's just to put it bluntly and, and to save time, and to all of that. I respect the not wanting to sing Kumbaya because the whole meet in the middle thing like drives me personally insane. Cause it's like, okay, you steal my humanity. I'm trying to live my life and you want us to meet in the middle? Like that's not happening. I'm not going to show respect for somebody who disregards what makes me me. Yes. Like that just seems that that's that's ridiculous. I think it's a it's an abuser's tactic though as well. That's what abuses we just move on. Let's you know, let's just right. one, let's meet in the we don't know. We can't you're murder, they're murdering people on camera and, get, and getting away with it to then show to other people that they can get away with it too. And I think that is very dangerous. You, know? yeah. you wouldn't I mean, do that to a kid. No, you don't say like, I'm gonna whoop your ass now, let's be friends. Right. You say that, but you don't, you know, that's not meeting in the middle. No, I, I, it's, and it won't make them feel better. Because something else will, another inequity will happen. Oh, I feel bad. But yeah, you're going to feel bad because you know it's wrong. That, that's really the thing. You know, this last year was good, I think, in a lot of ways because I wasn't really on social media like that before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And so you know, people, I, people would say, you know, people are nuts or wilds out here. But, it, you know, it, in the beginning, it was a lot of, you know, fans and people friending me from you know, bands I played with. And I was like, oh, this is nice. And people are very supportive. It wasn't until <laughs> June 1st, June 2nd, that people that I did not friend, but people that you know, asked me for my friendship, quote unquote, were saying the most vitriolic, like just the wildest stuff. And that's how blinding um, whiteness can be. I'm sure that they think they're good people and <laughs> it's not about race when you call us savages. 
or thugs or you care more about quote unquote property than you do about you seeing someone get murdered on camera. It was illuminating and I'm glad that I saw it because I don't want to kid myself when I'm playing on stage, playing the guitar. Cause I know that people, a lot of white people look, they go, well, you know, we like it's long hair. We remember Jimi Hendrix. That's great. Right. He's not threatening. Right. It's and, a, he's not one of, he's not one of them. He's not one of the, he's, he's one of the good ones. Yes. And that, you know, and that, that's a reality and but it doesn't make it any less sickening. And so, you know, I, I, so I'm glad that the last year happened because it's good to not kid yourself. It's good to live in reality, be aware that, you know what, this is a job and that person, as much as they want to smile and take a picture with me is at their house and they, they will never see me as a human being. It's true. You think about a lot of these sort of young people coming up in, in, you know, conservative culture right now. I bet you a bunch of those people are hip hop fans. Oh, one, tri one trillion percent. I've had, I've seen people send videos that are rappers that were pro-Trump videos, you know, but with black, you know, black rapper, but there's always going to be, you know, we had people like this in 1843. We had people like this in slavery times that would, you know, make the majority feel more comfortable. Right. Like you were saying that made me think of that. Like, yes, the conservative kids do like hip hop. You know, I, I was watching the news. People will say, oh, this piece of news dropped. I'm like, it dropped? Really? Wow. You. I remember Dan Rather saying things dropped in the 80s, but that's, <laughs> I guess they invented that too. <laughs> you know, it's like, what are we talking about? So their whole culture is defined by stealing blackness. Yeah. And, and again, to bring it back to capitalism, there's a reason Eminem is the number one paid rapper. Right. Right. It's not because he's technically quote unquote the best. I mean, that, that would be foolish. It's like saying Pat Boone is the best right when we know little richard was there at the same time i agree you know speaking my language <laughs> yeah i mean it, it's it and i was actually going that was going to be my my next question and thankfully you brought it up yourself which is like if your audience is primarily white how does it feel to be on i mean obviously you haven't been on stage singing your new material yet because we've been on lockdown for a year but on a fan level, there's got to be some cognitive dissonance there. And also, like, when you do get to a point where you're on stage and singing that, like, what's going to be going through your head, kind of looking out into the crowd? That's a thoughtful question. Yeah, I mean, I thought about it playing virtually, because I can't control, you know, who's watching what. Right. But that's why I'm glad the video is out. I feel like that says really where I'm coming from very clearly. And again that's why i'm glad this year happened i mean there could have been years ago and i tried to just get through it and try to make the the best out of you know feeling uncomfortable if i'm playing you know in a southern state in a situation you know it's like oh well maybe they're not as bad as bad as i think, think or, yeah. or feel or kind of see i don't want to kid myself or play myself but i'm not going to be timid about Playing. I would never think twice about playing that song. And I also, there's hopeful, like something in Riot, you know, is playing on the radio in Nashville, Tennessee right now, which is incredible. The fact that they would be willing to have that second verse in there, which is a pro reparations verse in a Southern state, I think says something to, we come somewhere, but I'm really looking forward to playing it. And if, and if people, if some people's whiteness shows and they get upset, I'm so sorry. So be it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. Right. That's all right with me. Yes. And for those who cannot see Tash in person, that that I'm so sorry is sarcastic. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. That's right. I forgot this is a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I well, you know. Well, listen. Both sarcasm and I am sorry that they will exist in a race this headspace that, yeah. that generally makes me sad for them 
It's true. That's true. I feel that. Yeah. So how tired are you of talking about your accident? I'm, I'm not. I actually, really? I, I love it because, but I appreciate the sentiment because I'm sure people, I'm sure some people would be, you know, it's traumatic, obviously it was a traumatic situation, but I, I'm so grateful every day. Like really, like I'm always, it's always on the mind because I feel it still in my, my, my head, you know, my, but again, it was a very clear point, like a midpoint in my life that was a before the accident and then after, especially because, um, of the brain trauma. Right. And I mean, I don't want to go into necessarily too much detail, but you, you were hit by a car. It's like, well, I do. No, yeah. I mean, and it's fine if you do, cause it was your experience. Yeah, no, it's good. No, it's interesting yeah. so, to paint the picture. Cause a lot of the songs have to do specifically with the accident. Right. Um, I got a single coming out called all I see is blood. That's based on me seeing blood in, in reality. Right. Um, you know, it is a cool metaphor for being angry. And I'm sure people can relate to that and, and that kind of fight, which is also what it's about, fight and stay alive and all that. But I say that to say, I was in a taxi cab in lower Manhattan, Bleecker Street, shout out to Bleecker Street. And I was with my very good friend Redford. And it was a chill night. That's the thing that a lot of times you think like, oh, the worst happens, you're wilding. Like, nah, like, it was an early Tuesday. And uh, I was at his studio, we were listening to music and we get in the yellow cab, like millions of people do every day. Right. And so we are driving and then we get hit by drag racers, right? Which is a one in a million, you know, accident. So we get T-boned by at like hundred something miles an hour. My head, my, this is my side of my head, like hits the window, breaks it. And, and they had to use the jaws of life to open the taxi cab to get us out. I mean, the car is destroyed and everybody check out all I see is about the video because that's got some, uh, some real, real footage in there. Wow. Yeah. But uh, so people just can visually see how bad it was. But so I hit the, the side, you know, hit the door and you know, I'm not conscious for any of this. I lost consciousness upon impact. But they knew that they had to operate on my brain immediately because my eye was like pop, starting to pop out of my head. And so the next thing is they take out half of my skull and they told everybody that it wasn't looking good. You know, I was pretty much a goner. The police would come to see if, it, you know, it was going to be a homicide or not, essentially. And so I'm in a coma for about a week. And, you know, the time my folks, if he wakes up, it's probably, you know, he won't be able to take care of himself. He may walk and talk in a year. And, uh, but you'll probably have to take care of the rest of his life. So, which, you know, and I feel terrible, you know, some of that is survivors because, you know, you don't want your family to go through that. So you sure. But thank, thank God I made it. And uh, I remember, you know, my first coming too. And so they wake me up and my whole family is around and I'm looking at every, and everybody's like crying, but like happy. And people are asking me like, you, you know, do you know my name? And I'm like, yeah, like you're, you know, you're Lauren, you're my dad, you're my mom. And I, and it was funny because I was like, oh man, this is like, so easy like i'm just making people happy by being here like this is great like what kind of fun <laughs> situation is this and, and then i look in the corner and the and the and there's you know doctor there only the white person in the room is like he's not in my <laughs> so it's like okay. not, not a relative it's not a relative like who's, <laughs> who's my man and he's in the corner and he just looked pale like wasn't smiling wasn't crying just looked really shook and just kind of like floated out of the room just kind of like backed out and just couldn't believe it and a uh, few days later they told me kind of what had happened but this whole period i'm having to live without half of my skull until my brain swelling goes down but uh, yeah but for, for about a week i thought i was seeing i had an eyelash but i had an eyelash i'm furiously rubbing my eye and it turned out there was blood in my eye and that's just been you know 
the existence you know wow but that's that's nothing compared to what could have been my life you know i, I would i'm so grateful because i see you know having been in the hospital i i, I personally firsthand seen what brain injuries how they affect people's lives so it, you know it was a heavy 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 thing was gratitude something that you were thinking about as a practice before the accident or was it something that the accident kind of brought into brought into the picture yeah i mean yeah i was like you know a thankful dude in general like always felt i always felt really lucky in the sense like nothing well in an odd sense like nothing like that had happened to me if that makes sense like, i get I, it i haven't had any bad accidents like i broke an arm you know as a kid but nothing too wild so going through a situation like this and also to see it's kind of like being at your own funeral but living through it and seeing like the people that really care about you mm. come through you know so i've you know my, my friends and family that are you know truly my dear friends and family that i'm so grateful for because they didn't have to take the time and be there for me like that, you know? So there's there's no way going through something like that wouldn't exponentially lift however grateful you were before. Sure. You know what I mean? Yeah. Hearing you describe it is just kind of like blowing <laughs> my mind right now. It, <laughs> now I'm like, oh shit, I'm stuck on stupid. When you, did it affect yours, like your spirituality at all? Did you think, was your whatever spiritual beliefs you had was was that affected at all i mean you know i had a very spiritual experience when i woke up from the coma and actually i was at I was at dame Dash's studio's gallery in la doing some work out there and he was interviewing one of the founders of rough rider records He's sitting there and he's talking about, he was in a coma for three months. Oh, wow. And, and he was describing the same spiritual experience that I had when I was in my coma. And I'd never found anybody one-on-one -on -one that I could converse with that had been through something similar and made it to the other side that we could talk about it. And yeah, I mean, what we, what happened was when I was alone, you know, obviously visiting hours end sometimes at the sure. hospital. So there would be nights when I'm just there, half my skull is gone and trying to figure out, you know, there, there, there are those existential moments, you know, like, well, what, what is life? What, you know, a lot of pain to live through and all this. But there was these moments when I would have memories, but they weren't visual. And I knew that it wasn't from, because I can remember like I just done a mini tour in LA right before the accident, like two days before the accident, I'd flown back from LA. And I would just have these memories I couldn't put visions to, but my spirit, I could feel that my spirit had been someplace else. But could, I was like, but maybe I'm, Maybe I'm wilding, like, you know, but I, I had these things I couldn't explain, but I just knew that it's like, you know, energy can neither be created nor destroyed. So it kind of confirmed that, you know, spiritually we're here, like what makes us us, it doesn't really go away. It might go to, you know, different bodies, but when I was not in my body, like when I was in the coma, I, w I wasn't gone. I, I was floating a bit right felt like. and then to hear my man describe it i just i was like wow like that's that's what i also felt so i guess you would that's more like spirituality less really religion you know right that's such a unique shared experience though to have someone sort of explain that to you and have it mimic what you've been through like that just feels like that's like, okay, only a few of us really know what goes down in that space. Absolutely. And yeah. I mean, you know, I'm so fortunate my coma was brief considering someone. Yeah, three months is insane. And can live 
and and talk and and communicate about it is unbelievable. Yeah. I was supposed to, you know, be walking. You know what I mean? You clearly have more of an appreciation of your time walking this earth. Are you one of those people who's like, okay, this happened to me, so now I have to do X times more stuff and you know all of this whatever. I mean, one thing I think about a lot. Like, and maybe it's just because I'm a weird fucking person, but I think about mortality a lot. You know, when I was, I wasn't, you know, I was born three and a half months premature, was in the hospital for like the first year of my life, all this other stuff. So for whatever reason, and I think that was the start of it, mortality is always in my head. And, and it, it makes me, I don't want to say angry, but it upsets me that people don't seize the moment necessarily when they when they, and look I, i'm lazy too but I, I don't know if people realize like the the finite nature of of time you know i i i mean i think that you're 100 correct i mean i i i wasn't one of those people I mean, I always was, again, great, you know, thankful, grateful to be out here, grateful to have a blessed life. I was able to play music and do shows. But again, it's like with you being born premature, that experience for me was like a rebirth and that like spending that time in the hospital and being around people that were in a way worse position than I was definitely shaped me, like, I, you know, in terms of how I approach understanding the you know how finite life can be but yeah i mean i i don't get upset like i you know i see people and they're not doing because i don't know what the people's most is or what their potential is but no i don't really i don't really i'm not judging folks or worried about that but i i think about mortality too just in the sense that I can feel because I have a plate in my head now and mm -hmm. you know it's a little indented. I always feel that the accident lives with me, you know, physically. So it's not something you can't escape in terms of it's a constant reminder of your life can be taken in an instant. So um, you're never not thinking about that, you know. Right. Right. Is music your primary means of self-care? You know, I, I didn't used to think of it as that, obviously, because my parents were working musicians. So I was like, oh, it's a job and all this. And, and I took it that way as a kid because I, I didn't enjoy it when I first started. I hated practicing. <laughs> I feel, do you enjoy practicing now? Yes. Because okay. now, quote unquote, practicing is... What I'm, what I am practicing is how to express myself, which is therapy. That that is self care. I I didn't put it together until, you know, really when I got into improvisation. But even then, I was trying to get good at it. It was always a work in progress or trying to become better as a musician, as opposed to existing within the moment and expressing yourself. Like just being like, oh, did I do that? Good enough? Was that solo the best it could? Deep. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's like you, you, I was like, is he about to, are you chuckling? Are you about to say something or? No, I was laughing. I was just remembering like hating practicing so much as a kid. It's playing one string for an hour and just being like, oh, this, why would anybody like this? And now like I, I would, there would be days when I'd play for 10 hours because I loved it so much. But then I was, oh, I'm just getting good at this and I'm working out in the gym with my guitar, but not realizing I felt a relief or maybe whatever frustration is that day I'm playing out and it is therapy. Cause you know, when you're playing just string instruments, whatever instrument you're making vibrations that that can't be denied and music is healing. So whatever you're playing, even if it's a chord for five minutes, that's going to heal you in some way. So yeah, I'd say it's my main thing of self in terms of it's the thing I do the most, but I think Therapy is important. I think a lot of people should always be, you know, self-aware. You know, I'm glad we live in a space these days that self-care is even a concept one can mention colloquially. Mm -hmm. Your folks will now know what that means. You know, one of the things, you're grateful enough to not only live through an accident, but 
to live this long to see us evolve, you know, as a society, to, to let go of those hangups, you know. That's one thing that's so important to me and part of the reason that I do this podcast, but I remember being a kid or a teenager, even a young adult growing up and thinking in my head, I should see a therapist or I'm depressed or there's something wrong with me. And you express those feelings, you know, particularly in our community. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I don't know if this is common for a lot of people, but you know, it'd be like, you don't go tell white people, some white person in the office, your problems, or, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, keep shit in the house or whatever it was. And now to see it normalized and normalized in a way where like, you got people like Jay-Z talking about it. You got like people talking about going to therapy and taking care of themselves and self-care and having a balance and all that stuff. Like that, that is one of the things that just makes me believe in progress, that progress is real, you know, and this has only happened in like the past five, six years since, you know, we lost Scott Weiland and Chris Cornell and Chester Bennington and and Anthony Bourdain and all these other people, you know. I mean, that is, and it is wild how recent it is, like five to six years is not a long time. No, not at all. So it was really, really very recent. I remember being in like 2005, like, wow, we're in the future, you know, people are being a little <laughs> bit more inclusive, but not really, you know, and, and it's almost sad because like we, our bar should be so low, you know, but I can definitely relate, you know, we both growing up in New York and at that time, we, there was a lot of bravado, a lot of machismo wasn't cool yeah. to be sensitive, you know, showing your feelings and all that, which is why I really appreciate you know, an artist like Jay-Z who could represent that kind of machismo bravado and show in that vulnerability because it gives everybody else a little bit of permission and leeway to uh, show their vulnerability, which essentially is showing themselves. You know, we've always been sensitive. It was just what the culture around us was, you know, telling us and defining to us, you know, what things were. You know, so I, it's so important to get rid of those stigmas. It was so sad when my dad, Scott Wilde and Winchester and, you know, and, and, and that's the thing also people don't understand. They think depression doesn't affect people that are successful or the, the stigmas go kind of both ways. It's, you know, it's like a nobody can win kind of thing. Right. So with this development in the last five to six years, like you said, it gives me hope because I know that we have further to grow, but we, we've started here and we potentially lost a lot less lives because we made this conversation more normalized i, I mean i hope <laughs> yeah but also i think there's there's got to be tangible proof somewhere that by normalizing therapy and you know making giving people permission to access those things or talk to people that it has it, you know look if it saves one life it's worth it i'm sure it saved a lot more than one absolutely yeah, i mean that considering how influential artists are in the community it definitely did definitely did so so what what is the future do you i mean i'm gonna ask you to peer into the crystal ball here the future for tash neal what does that look like you know i'm super hopeful i'm very very excited that this album's gonna be out people can hear where i'm coming from right now musically the future for me is making the next album you know, I've got the songs ready, been a lot to write about. So I'm really excited about that. My band's fire. So, you know, we're excited to get out there and show what we can do in person eventually. But even virtually too, um, people are doing things here and there. So yeah. getting able to vibe with other musicians in a room is so key and that hasn't been possible for a while. So I'm just excited, man, to play this music for the people, for people to hear the record, hear where I'm coming from as a human being truly and very personally and and hopefully yeah get out more shows to the people in the future but definitely yeah making this next album have you been feeling that crazy creative burst while we've been locked down in and out in and out you know there were definitely weeks when i mean i can't i was just upset to the point where i felt people were abusing music or taking advantage of it. Okay. And I'm like, if, if 
there is a substantial amount of people that don't see Aretha Franklin's humanity, but will use her song to clean the house on Sunday and then claim that, you know, they're a good person and so on and so forth. Do they really deserve that gift? You know, I, that was a kind of hard moment. And, and I didn't feel like writing, you know, the, the day of January 6th, you know, that was really deflating. So there were a lot of moments where self-care, to your point, was, was, was more key than taking advantage and writing a song, you know, trying to do something topical. Sure. At that moment, I needed to really sit with, you know, what we're all seeing and witnessing and what was supposed, supposedly modern times. So, yeah, man, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful on my end about music, but I'm, hope, <laughs> I'm hoping the society keeps it together so that I can play these concerts in the future and that people can agree on reality so that we can get over this, this pandemic. We can do these interviews in person. Person, for real. Because it'll just be way more fun, way more. <laughs> it's know? crazy, man. Yeah. I, I haven't been in Manhattan in Manhattan in 11 months, which is mind boggling. Yeah. Like, you know, from growing up in New York, like I have not been on the train. I mean, <laughs> listen, and I thought the same thing in the beginning. You've seen like I've seen the development, especially in New York. You know, first people were a little paranoid. And you see some cats be a little too lax, you know, then it developed, people want to get outside. So, but again, I, when I got back on the subway, people got back to that early 90s energy, that early, that late 80s. That scary energy. shit, yeah. It was really touch and go. Like, yeah. they almost went left on the platform a couple of times. I said, what? I can see that. Everybody's on edge. It was it it was wild. I saw man, some dude was throwing soda on somebody, and there was no cops around to do nothing. If I said I'm bouncing, yeah, be I'm out. Not doing this, I'm not doing this. Nope. As a New Yorker, I know better. I'll be it, on. your little spidey sense yeah, kind of tingling. Like, Shut up, hey, yeah. not today. Yeah. Not today. <laughs> yep, I'll go climb those stairs. Mind my business somewhere else. I walked halfway down. I said, no, oh, yeah. no, right back. <laughs> No, yeah. I see what's going on. I feel it, and it's not good. It's not getting better. That's a sign. Right around. <laughs> another two, three. Yeah, there'll be one coming soon in another six minutes. I'm good. Right. Listening back to this episode and reading the transcript, I noticed how much ground Tash and I covered thematically. There's a lot that sticks out to me, but I guess what made the biggest impression is that he's so appreciative and grateful for his experiences and still has such a positive outlook on life. I think it's common to take a lot of what we have for granted. And I'm not saying we need to stop and smell every single flower and thank it for existing, but being able to slow down even just a little and be mindful of the things, and more importantly, the people that sustain and support us is something I feel like we need to do more often. Uh, because it's not a guarantee that we'll be able to give them these flowers the next time we see them, or even that there'll be a next time we see them. So em embrace the finite nature of life and let's make sure we appreciate and show gratitude as much as possible. I'm so grateful to Tash for being so giving of his time and for sharing his story so honestly. Please, please, please make sure you check out his debut solo album, Charge It To The Game, in whatever fashion you enjoy music. Now, of course, I'm supportive of whichever way gets him as the artist the most money. So buying the record, uh, of course, would, would perform that function. And, uh, you know, that would be what I would recommend. But... You know, if you stream, that's cool too. The important thing is that you check his music out and you spread the word. Uh, you can find Tash Neal under his name, Tash Neal, on every social media outlet there is. Well, most social media outlets. I don't think he's on like TikTok or anything like that. But Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, the usual. Make sure you check him out, Tash Neal. Thanks for listening to this episode of Detoxicity. I hope that you enjoyed it and I hope that you push that subscribe button and follow on socials. Once again, I am Detox Pod Guy on Instagram and I am Tiz Mike Joseph on Twitter. Please feel free to rate and comment and also reach out if you know anyone that would like to be on the show or if you know anyone who would like to uh, listen to the show or who would enjoy listening to the show or who would get something out of the message that we're sending in these episodes. Uh, I want to thank Calvin Williams for providing the music that you hear at the beginning and end of each of these podcasts. I want to thank Jacob Block 
for providing the artwork that you see when you're listening to this episode on platforms. I want to thank Jeff Giles for the inspiration behind the creation of this podcast to begin with, along with Andrew Grossman, uh, who's been a previous guest on the show and also provided sort of a seed for this podcast to take place. Uh, Once again, my name is Mike Joseph. I am the host and producer of this podcast. I want to thank you for listening and please take care of yourselves. And I would say take care of yourselves and each other, but I would be stealing from Jerry Springer if I did that. But you get the idea. See you next week.